So welcome to another episode of The Leadership Enigma. And as always, I'm very, very excited to have my guest today, Rupert Jones, CBE. And let me pose a question, and I'm actually going to use one of Rupert's LinkedIn posts because I think he's done a fantastic job in framing this episode. So, today we live in a confused leadership landscape with politicians who are often binary, confrontational, divisive and populist. So outside of politics, the trend seems to be towards monochrome and socially constrained leadership. So here's the question. Do we have the leadership culture to thrive given today's geopolitical reality? And I think that's a wonderful question for a wonderful episode. And you need to come back to me after this break so that you can hear from Rupert, who's a former commander, UK Defence's standing joint force. He's commanded operations in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and the Caribbean, promoted as the youngest major general at the time, and decorated on overseas operations twice. Trust me, you don't want to miss this episode. Come back to me just after this. Hi, I'm Adam Pacifico, and welcome to The Leadership Enigma, a world-ranked, award-winning podcast that's insatiably curious as regards what leaders do, how they do it, and importantly, why. We'll delve into the human doing, but even deeper into the human being and the power of human-centered leadership to drive sustainable change. So whether you're an entrepreneur, business owner, corporate executive, each week we speak to global experts, academics, rising stars, ambitious upstarts and disruptors, as together we will discover that success leaves clues. So Rupert, it's a massive warm welcome. Thank you so much for coming into the Leadership Enigma. How are you? Very well, Adam, and thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Now, that's one of the most deliberate introductions I've given <laughs> because I'm normally super excited and curious to just get into the conversation. But when I saw your post, I thought that was a wonderful framing and question for us to discuss today, which is right in the sweet spot of leadership. But before we come to that, you have an incredible CV. So can I, I say this a lot, go backwards to go forwards. How did you end up going into the military? Yeah, so almost by accident in a way. My father was in the military. Yep. Um, he, so I was brought up in, in that. Uh, and he was, he was killed in the Falklands War um, and achieved a degree of um, notoriety, I guess. He was awarded posthumous Victoria Cross. I saw that, yeah. And I had always, you know, like so many of us, we, we know what we're going to do when we grow up. We're going to be a fireman. I'm going to be an astronaut. I was going to be in the army. And I never grew out of that. So I never made a conscious decision to join the army. It was just what I was always going to do. Right. And, and that's how it came about, really. How old were you when you lost your father? I was 13. Um, and it was, as you can imagine, it was yeah. a pretty searing experience. Um, uh, he was a wonderful, charismatic father, um, and I lost him in the most public possible yeah. uh, circumstances. So you know, it's kind of it's very much shaped who I am ever since. Actually, who was he serving with at the time? He was serving in the parachute regiment, right? Um, and uh, yeah, leading leading his battalion in battle, and um, he paid the paid the price. Wow! So you grew up obviously uh, as part of a military family with an incredible role model and figurehead in, in your father. And you say he posthumously was awarded the Victoria Cross as well. Just help people understand the what that is really and, and just how it's awarded. Yeah, so the Victoria Cross in, in Britain is the highest award we can give for gallantry yes. uh, in war. Um, very, um, I think he was the 11th Victoria Cross to be awarded since the Second World War. Right. Uh, and he, he received his in 1982. 
And so he was leading his battalion, about 700 troops in, in a battle at a place called Goose Green, yes. uh, which was pivotal to the liberation of the Falkland Islands. And the battle wasn't going very well. Um, and he sort of grabbed the battle by the, by the scruff of the neck, if you like, and uh, uh, charged an enemy position and, and was, was killed. So, you, you know, after that, there's somebody writes up a citation explaining mm. what, what happened, and it goes through a big, long approvals process. And at the end of it, uh, in this case, he was awarded a Victoria Cross. I, I appreciate you sharing this story because I'm always fascinated in the human being and what motivates us and how we end up in, in certain careers. So prior to that event, did you, at that early age, think I'm I'm going to follow in my dad's footsteps? I'm yeah, going to go into very the much so. You know that was you know that was my kind of schoolboy you know childhood. Um, just what I was going to do. You yes. know I loved you know we lived on army camps. I had the army around me all the time when I wasn't at school, and I was inspired by it. Um, and I wasn't deterred after he was killed. You know, in a way, I suppose I felt I almost had a. A kind of a legacy to live up to. Wow. Know, to, as as my brother joined the army as well, and we, I, you know, to some degree, I, I certainly felt felt that, um, yeah. and have probably felt throughout my career in a way. So you were fully immersed growing up in the military way of life, and you said you had a brother as well. And he went in, into the the army. In some ways, it was always going to be, wasn't it? So when you you thought to yourself, it's now my time to join the military. Did you want to go into the, into the paras? Did you want to follow in the footsteps, quite literally? Or, or did you think to yourself, no, what, what was the route that you wanted to take, would you say, when you were thinking to yourself, there's a legacy to follow? Yeah, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's hard to know when you're that age. Yeah, you know, exactly. To what degree is it real you know, independent thought? And yes. what is it, to what degree is it kind of outside influences? So my intention was to join the parachute regiment. It was the regiment I knew best. My yes. father wasn't always in the Paris. He was in uh, an old regiment called the Devon and Dorsets before that. Right. We're, we're, we're West Country people. Um, Is that an infantry unit? Yes, it was an right. infantry regiment. And so I was going to go into the parachute regiment. And then for a whole host of reasons, quite late on, I changed my mind. Uh, and I think that was the right decision. In fact, I know it was the right decision. I think it would just have been too close. You know, I was joining the army seven, eight years after my father was killed. Right. I think it was just, it was too close. So I joined his original regiment, which actually my brother was in as well. Um, and they then subsequently became the rifles. And I, and I loved, never looked back from that. And that, that was, for me, that was absolutely the right route. Right. And then just tell us a little bit of, of the military CV that you had. Um, just, you know, help us understand that journey through. Yeah, so I started my uh, military career, um, as many of us did back then in Germany. It was just after the wall had came, come down, yes. so there was still a big military presence in Germany. And from there, we we went to Northern Ireland. We served in Bosnia during the war there. Yep. So that was kind of that was my kind of formative years in Germany. Um, and then, of course, as time went on, we hit, after 9-11, we hit, hit the Middle East wars. Right. And that really dominated my military career thereafter essentially. So I found myself serving in, in Iraq, uh, commanded twice uh, in Afghanistan, including commanding the British forces in Afghanistan in 2013. And then I went back to Iraq um, as a major general when we were dealing with the ISIS threat, Daesh. Right. Um, uh, and I, I was the deputy commander of the US-led coalition in 2016-2017. So you were um, operational for much of your career. Yeah, I remain. I'm, my focus very much remained operational. So I either spent time in the Ministry of Defence, 
I spent quite a lot of time there. And when I wasn't there, whenever I could, I deployed on operations, which right. is, as you get more senior in the military, as in all businesses, yeah. you tend to move away. You know, you diversify, you find yourself doing all sorts of other things. So in the military, you might be in, end up in HR, you might be in procurement, all these different, you know, worthy, important bits of the mm. business. For me, the, the constant call was back to overseas operations, and, did, and that's what I did all the way through. Right. Did you go in via the officer route, or did you go through the ranks? Yeah, and no, I went in as an officer, um, and I, I mean, I was actually sponsored at school and then at Were university. Sandhurst? Was Sandhurst? Yes, through Sandhurst. Yep. Um, so, no, that, that was my, my path. So if you, as you go in through, because it was a military career or something, I always thought, oh, I think I'd like to do that at university. Um, ended up being a police officer for a period of time. So uh, I don't know. They're not really akin, but you know what I mean. But with going in through Santos, leadership would always have been the theme for you then because you were going in probably as a young officer where you would be leading people with more experience than you, older than you. So I can imagine that leadership was a theme that was thrust upon you or certainly discussed very early on. Do you remember some of your initial thoughts or, or learnings around you as a young leader within the military? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you, you a lot of something really important. So... So Sandhurst is all about teaching leadership. The theory goes, if you're going through the gates at Sandhurst, you are capable of being an officer in the British Army. You've, you know, you've been, you've gone through the selection process. In theory, Sandhurst is then going to train you in. And the vehicle they use at Sandhurst is infantry tactics. But what it's really about is teaching leadership. The idea is by the time you leave Sandhurst, you're a leader. And then you go off and do your specialist training to be an engineer or a tank commander or whatever it might be. So Santos is all about teaching, educating uh, about leadership. And so, you know, for, you know, the military is one of the very unusual organizations in this country, or indeed any country, that trains and educates and talks about leadership as much as it does. Early on. As Early well. on, right from, from the outset. It's all about being a leader. And Santos has a motto that goes back, decades which is serve to lead and you know that is that is what they try and instill in all British army officers and indeed the foreign officers officers who come through Sandhurst is that you know leading is all about service is about serving the people you lead Um, and you know we probably don't always get it right but that's absolutely you know nobody ever ever forgets the concept of serve to lead when you say serve to lead do they help you understand that at the early stages or are they asking you to start to define that for yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the the, uh, the manner in which it's done will be different now. Um, I've never served at Santa since. I've gone back and forth, but yeah. I've never I've never been on the on the sort of staff there. But I'm, I'm confident it'll be broadly what it was when I went through 30 plus years ago. Yeah. Where they, I mean, they, they, you get a book, a little book called Serve to Lead. Okay. And it's a little handy, you know, guide lots of good historical vignettes, helpful quotes that give meaning to the concept to serve to lead. Uh, and they will then absolutely you know, explain to you what it means in practical terms. But of course, quite quickly, you have to begin to bring your own personality to that. They give you the, the tools, but you then have to shape it to your own, your own character and style. Yes. Help people understand how old were you and how old perhaps were the recruits at, at this point at Sandhurst? Yeah, so, so my case, um, so Sandhurst is all officers. So I went through Sandhurst aged, I guess I was 21. I think I, well, I was probably 22 when I left Sandhurst. Yes. And so you then, by the time you're commanding troops, in my case, out in Germany, I was, yeah, I, was, I think I was 22 um, when you first take over troops, maybe, yeah, probably 22. 
And the soldiers you're commanding are anything from, you know, they could be as young as 17 right. um, back then, but 18, 19-year-olds mm. through to your, you know, your old sweat, your platoon sergeant, who's there to kind of keep keep a you know, firm <laughs> Is handle. Is that the person who's really in He's control? He's the one, absolutely. <laughs> you know, he's probably mid-30s. Uh, in my case, I always remember I had a, a, a sergeant, Jim Hendy, who I, I walked into the office for the f- for the first time yes. you know, to meet my platoon sergeant, and you know you've been prepared for this for quite a long time. <laughs> you know, this is the big moment, <laughs> and you go in to make make your impact. And uh, I meet Sergeant Hendy, and he goes, "Hello, sir. Um, last time I saw you, you were age about five, uh, and he had been in my father's company way way back when. And he recounted how he was in front of my father for some disciplinary offence. Uh, my father was dealing out." appropriate military justice to to the then private Hendy and apparently I was sit uh, sat in the back of the office taking notes as a little boy and so I, when he told me that story I think I think I know how this relationship works wow what you, you're you're the you're the wise old sweat and I'll learn a lot from you wow and there's the legacy again isn't it there's he the served legacy. and knew your father I mean it's a small world isn't it sometimes very much so yeah you know and and you know, at one level, these you know the military is can be a family. So my old regiment, the, my original regiment, the Devon and Dorsets, West Country Regiment, an yes. awful lot, the overall majority of the recruits were from those two counties. Yes. And so you got lots of brothers, lots of cousins. If they weren't brothers or cousins, they probably went to school with each other in Plymouth. So it's a very tight little community. Um, and if you spread that out across the army, relatively big organisation though it is, there'll still be any number of those kind of those kind of uh, domestic connections. How does Sandhurst get you ready to lead at such a young age and to lead people who are more experienced, wiser, older? How do you, because that's something that in corporate life many people struggle with. How do they get you ready to walk into a room at 22, 23 and have a degree of presence or to try and mm. establish some degree of authority for people who just know far more? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is that, you know, the, the, the British Army goes to great strengths to find people with the potential. Right. So the kind of selection process to get into Sandhurst in the first place, you know, if, if you get through that, then they're going, okay, we, we see potential in you. We know you can be a leader. We, you know, all of our experience tells us you can be a leader. Yeah. So you already, in theory, have the, the, the aptitude. You just need it harnessing. Yeah. You need some skills. So I guess that that's that's the most important thing in a way is is picking the right people in the first place, and then they, you know, it, it's you know it's now it's a year at Santos. It's a pretty intense um, process. You know, it's teaching discipline, it's teaching military skills, it's teaching you the theory of leadership, it's teaching you the concept of service. It teaches you to be humble, hmm. to recognise what you know what you bring and what the more experienced soldiers you command bring and what your respective roles are uh, and slowly they, they build your confidence um, and I think you know the trick and again I'm sure you know many of us don't do this brilliantly when we first arrive and you kind of learn humility as you go probably through trial and error yes. um, is is you know you begin to recognize what you bring yeah. you know and you you can bring some uh, some intellect and some moral strength that that is is unique potentially to the officer in many in many cases but critically you learn to listen take advice uh and and you then learn by doing so just so people understand that's a residential program isn't it so you're immersed again 24 7 yeah in 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 that environment did that have an impact on you as well 
that that full immersion because in some ways you'd experienced immersion in your early yes childhood with your father's work so now you're fully immersed at Sandhurst does does that make a difference yeah I mean I'm 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 from that kind of uh slightly old school um boarding school background okay. so many you know one of the things that the military does is that they they subsidize boarding school for the for kids because yes. you move around so much one of the ideas is you subsidize boarding school education so the kids can be stable as the families move around. So I, I boarded at school from the age of eight. Right. Left school 10 years later, having boarded for 10 years. Then I went to university. Didn't feel much different. Didn't feel very different. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't feel very different. Um, and But Sandus, of course, is different. You know, it is, as you say, full immersion. Um, it is very much residential. It's, you know, they've got you and they, you know, they work you hard. And yeah. I think it hasn't changed. You know, what they call the first five weeks at Sandhurst is total immersion. I'm, we didn't have mobile phones back then, but you know, you were absolutely, you know, kind of locked in. I suspect they don't have their mobile phones during that period now. I don't know. Right. Um, and that's the first five weeks where you just, you know, you're on it, on it, on it, on it, and then at the end of five weeks, you kind of get a get a weekend off. So let's compare and contrast this to the work you now do. I know you've got a portfolio of work, an advisory role, a coaching role, and you and you have obviously a a focus and uh, a desire to do work within the leadership space, but in civilian life. So compare and contrast that early focus that the military put on young people leading and perhaps the lack of focus that corporates put on young people leading. Have you got any thoughts in relation to why that is? Or are are we missing a trick in, in some ways by not harnessing the talented very early on yeah i mean i think we probably are i mean you know of course the military are, are to some degree different um and so i understand why corporate entities you know, when people first come into the workforce you know their focus is different it might be more technical yeah. in it in its in its output but i do think that um the corporate landscape and of course i'm making a gross generalization here um generally fail to recognize the value of leadership i would argue that almost all enterprises start stand and fall on leadership leadership especially and today de- yeah, especially today leadership and, and decision making you know yes. whether you're i work with quite a lot of st- uh, startups and you know when mm. you look at how startups fail of course it might be it might be a, a you know flawed product or it might be a lack of finance but ultimately where they fall or stand is around the leadership that the founders bring to them, right. the decision-making. As the organization grows, their ability to kind of change their approach to lead- leadership. Uh, so, I, you know, I do think uh, there is a lack of focus on leadership uh, in the corporate world, and I think it's too often seen as an overhead. It, it's not. It's a core output of any successful business. Perhaps if businesses started earlier then that may actually give significant benefits. And I do wonder, you know, I've worked a lot right across sectors and professional services, and sometimes I see examples of incredibly talented people in relation to what they do best in class, but they've never had an opportunity to really think about leadership. And when they make that move from best in class to leading others, they start to fail, and that can be after 25 years, Rupert. So in, in some ways, again, the leadership piece got lost or it, it was reserved for those who were at a certain level. How, I'm not really sure how that's, that's happened in some ways. No, and I think, you know, 
I mean, I think it is, you know, it's that focus on the, on the bottom line, isn't it? And and so somewhere along the line, people don't see leadership as being as being central to that. Mm. And so, as you say, as, as people come up through an organization or through their career, and they suddenly find themselves, yeah, they may have done a bit of management along the way, yeah. but they suddenly find themselves in a leadership position. But, you know, they, they've had no background in this. And leadership is like any activity. It's like being a sportsman. You don't get to be a great sportsman without practice. You've got to exercise the muscle, right? You've got to exercise the muscle. And the leadership muscle is, is no different. And so you're suddenly presenting these people with leadership challenges relatively late in their career. And, and they sort of, I don't mean this unkindly, but often they, they might think they've got some leadership background. But they haven't. It's a muscle that they've never really had to use properly. Uh, and so that's then a pretty steep learning curve yeah. when you're probably at a middle middle of your career. What do you see maybe as, as the biggest difference between, because you mentioned management, someone who can manage something to someone who can lead something. In your experience, what's what's the biggest differential? Yeah, there? there's all sorts of kind of, you know, um, quotes, you know. And there's lots of thoughts exactly on this. Exactly, aren't there? And, you know, you know, I would say management is more about things and leadership is more about people. Um, you, leadership is, is you know, you're the ultimate decision maker. You're the inspiration. You're, you know, it's about accountability and responsibility. Management is about, you know, making bits of a jigsaw, bits of a big business work, and, and that is that is. You may still have line management responsibilities for people. Yes. To me, that's not quite the same as leading small or indeed big teams. So how long was your military career? How many years did you do in total? I'm not trying to age you now in some ways, Rupert. <laughs> About 30, uh, 32-ish years, something so, of that order. And your last posting was what? So my last job uh, was um, uh, the Standing Joint Force Commander. What does that mean in real terms? Yes. <laughs> so the United Kingdom has a small group of high, very high readiness headquarters ready to deploy around the world at very short notice to deal with with crises so and i commanded that that group of headquarters um so as a for instance just you know, something will be kind of vaguely in people's mind is when the the carbon extraction happened two summers ago the the british headquarters that that led that operation was one of my subordinate headquarters right um so that, that was my, my last job do you miss it what a miss! Yes, I do. Um, I mean, I, don't, I think you know, you you when you've been in an organisation for three plus decades, you know, it'd be hard not to miss it. You know, I stayed there for a reason. I loved it. Yeah. I don't miss everything about it, if I'm brutally honest. So, what do I miss? I miss the soldiers. You know, the camaraderie is. is these are wonderful, special, wonderful people. The camaraderie. They're fantastic people from every walk of life. Uh, many from a very challenging background, and the military gives them something amazing. And and you know you see, you you see real progression amongst these these wonderful young men and women. So I miss them. I'll always miss There's them. There's a huge element of inclusivity, isn't there, as well? As you say, from the diversity of thought because of just the breadth of yep. backgrounds that the military is taking. Absolutely, from. and we one thing we criticise ourselves probably right in this country is about the lack of social mobility. Right. The military offers social mobility. It brings in some people from some incredibly difficult backgrounds, broken homes, you know, terrible stories. It probably makes them, doesn't it? It makes them. It gives them friends. It gives them purpose. And now they're, you know, 19, 20-year-old young man or woman with purpose. By the time they're 30, 40, some of these people are sending their own kids to boarding schools. You know, that that is social mobility in a single generation because they were hugely capable. They rose up through the ranks and they're suddenly... You know, they, they've got the opportunity to, to give their children a wholly different start in life. Yeah. 
just explain to people because I, I've had this experience in a limited way six years as a serving police officer that you are sharing your life very closely with people over a prolonged period of time in situations which can be life-threatening certainly for the military as well so when we talk about camaraderie just help people understand what that felt like to you because you know you served across the world you've been decorated a number of times but you've also been in very very hostile environments where life is at stake just to help people understand what that means to you that sense of belonging and yeah it's i mean it's really hard to you know put into words and i i said describe those times in afghanistan in particular but also in iraq and syria it's kind of the best of times and the worst of times you know of course it's awful you know you don't want there to be wars happening you don't want there to be violence uh and they're brutal and you see friends maimed and and killed and and that's the worst of times Mm. and yet the the kind of the unity of purpose the focus on whatever it is you are doing is absolutely inspiring you know these young men and women come together in teams in cohorts and the the camaraderie between them is Mm. extraordinary they're all in this they're all in it together they deal with adversity together they deal with joy together they deal with laughter together and and that is you know that is really powerful and and there's a kind of there's always something i think people find hard to visualize is you know what what makes a young man or indeed woman fight and put their life at risk mm. and they don't do it for the prime minister um they you know they might have some kind of sense of king and country but what they really do it for is their mates their mates to their left and their mates to their right that immediate that immediate team you know the the people right next to them who they they share a kind of you know they sleep right next to um they're their friends and and they know if something happens to them that soldier to their mate will come for them yes and they're going to do the same for, for their mate so it's a very tight friendship base and it and it and that's where fighting spirit builds from it it builds from that very small team and grows up to, up from that. I think outside the military, what we, you tell me, outside of the military, maybe some of the emergency services, it's almost impossible to find that, isn't it? I, I think so. At I mean, such an extreme level. At such an extreme level. You know, I, mean, I think you're absolutely right. There's versions of it in the, in the emergency services. I mean, I think you can see parallels in sport. The, the, yes. the jeopardy is different. You, you lose the in, but the intensity is there. Isn't the it? intensity is there. The jeopardy is different because you don't you, know, you don't lose life, but you lose a match, and sometimes it feels like life and death. Yeah. Um, but but the 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 intensity is the same, and I often find your sporting analogies with with the militaries are quite helpful. Right. The, I think there are quite a lot of crossovers. Yeah. Um, and of course, there are analogies that soldiers tend to relate to because they tend to be very keen sportsmen themselves, and they're big big sports fans. Mm. Um, and I think that so I think there are, there are parallels, but they're only parallels. So I, I wanted us to have this conversation because you're one of the guests who has probably been thinking about leadership from such an early age. I talked to so many senior leaders, and perhaps it's <coughs> excuse me, leadership is something they've thought about later in life as they've they've been in positions of leadership. But this is something that maybe even you knew was going to be your legacy when you unfortunately lost your father all those years ago. Uh, so leadership has been part and parcel of your life, and you wrote this post, which uh, is really the the subject of the discussion now, about we live in a confused leadership landscape where the, the world has gone bonkers with so many things going on. Change is at the speed of thought. 
And you talked about we've got binary confrontational divisive and populist leaders. And actually, we need a different kind of leadership in a world today. Help me understand what was behind this thinking initially because of your three decades worth of experience and now you're working within mm. civilian life and corporate life. So what are you seeing and feeling, Rupert? Yeah, so, so on leaving the military, I spent a bit of time kind of reflecting on my own leadership experience yes. and made any number of mistakes over the, over the years. You never, you never stop learning. So I kind of reflected and I packaged up my thoughts. And then I found myself giving a talk to um, an American organization and they yes. wanted to be taught. And the title was A Legacy and Leadership. So right. that kind of got me thinking. So you sometimes need the stimulus of something like that to really, really frame your thoughts. And, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about very carefully since I've been out in the military yep. is that environment. You know, that, that kind of crazy world we live in today where, you know, there are strategic shocks around literally every corner. You know, Brexit, the pandemic, invasion of Ukraine, you know, uh, economic crisis you name it these are big strategic shocks and they seem to be hitting us all and it's one after the other and it's one after the other and so that then gets you thinking about the degree to which you know the corporate landscape is really prepared for that and i think there's a there's a moot point there i think some are i think some are less so but it then begins to take you into the conversation about okay have we got the leadership that we need to deal with those those threats and and you know let's not kid ourselves in amongst that um, you know, our Western way of life is potentially threatened because something like the pandemic is, you know, a global phenomenon. But there are there are there are nations who who you know want to want to change the world order. You know, they don't want a West dominated world, and you know, China is absolutely at the forefront of that. They pose a real economic and strategic and security threat to us. Rupert, can I just ask a quick? Because it's something that's that's been on my mind. We've always sometimes talked about the Western way of life, mm. and that maybe has been paramount, but that's not the case anymore, is it? I've, the more and more people I talk to who are from the East are actually now saying, we know how to deal with things now. We don't need to look to the West. We are capable, and we have the resources to I think lead that, the way. I, I think is that a fair comment? Yeah, I, I think so. And indeed, yeah, look, you know, what do we mean by the Western way of life? I don't mean that as something that we export to the east i mean it's just the manner in which we in the yes. west tend tend to live you know we've lived broadly since you know the nation recovered from the second world war and that was a slow recovery wasn't it that, that yep. our parents generation went through but you know by the 70s certainly by the 80s we're living in a pretty affluent society and yes we've got a cost of living crisis right now but crikey anyone from the 50s or 60s would bite your arm off for the economic situation we have today yeah. so, so we live in quite a um complacent environment um are we a little bit flabby you know as a result of that are we less resilient i would argue yes we probably are right and and as we're getting a bit soft around the edges of society there are other societies who've you know absolutely their economies are on the rise uh they they know how to counter us economically and from a security point of view right and that's where i then come to this question about whether or not we have the leadership we need to deal with those sort of threats both within government but also within the corporate environment do you think this is also why a lot of people now are looking to large corporations to make a real difference in the world perhaps even beyond what governments are being expected to do in some ways some people seem to have given up with world leaders because of some of the things that we're, we're seeing playing out and are actually now saying to the big 
global iconic organizations, how will you be a force for good? Yeah. How will you drive impact in the world? And actually, I'm looking towards to you now beyond beyond the government of any regime. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've got to hope that our politics, our pol- our political classes come back into, into the centre and, and we, we get good leadership back. And we've all got a vested interest in that, of course. Um, in parallel with that, you want your big businesses to set an example. You want them to help governments by, you know, giving good economic advice, good business advice, being part of the overall journey, in the case of the United Kingdom, in the mm. UK's success, the same in the US or France or anywhere else. What, what I think we don't want is somehow big corporates replacing government. I think that's a really dangerous place to go. And, you know, we can think of some examples with, you know, Elon Musk trying to get involved in Ukraine, you know, offering some kind of, you know, um, peace option. You know, that that can't be a good thing. You know, we ha- to me, you have to rely on your world leaders, the you know, the NATO, the United Nations, to to operate at that level. But we do want the big global uh, companies to play to be a force for good in the world. Do you think the line is being fudged a little now? I was reading just just only this morning, in relation to really the power and influence of maybe the the technology companies and those who own and run them. That actually, if you they were to really leverage together, their might is considerable. Is there, is there a fudging now between corporations and governments, and now anybody can get involved in anything? Well, the, there's certainly a little bit of that, isn't yeah. there? You know, it feels we, like it. Yeah, it certainly feels like it. And you know, these, you know, the big companies are sometimes they're not even that big companies, but they're very powerful, and the digital environment gives them great potency global reach global absolutely global reach instantaneous reach and and again we're seeing that in in ukraine where you know there are some companies who are absolutely helping the ukrainians very very potently they've got these kind of fantastic capabilities that help the ukrainian warfighter you know fight and win against against the russians but that's got to you know that's got to be harnessed what you don't want is kind of these companies going off kind of unilaterally and i'm not suggesting they are but they've got to be, you know, and we've seen this in war in the past. Even with best intent. Even with the best intent. You know, fundamentally, wars, unless they have insurgencies, are between nation states. And so these companies need to support, in this case, the Ukrainian government. So one of the real passions for me is human-centered leadership for a world better led. Take into account the world as we see it, and it's going to be something else and then something else. And let's be honest, it's, it's, it's this ever-changing environment. And I talk to CEOs and senior leaders all the time, and they're trying now to have the capabilities and the skills to manage and lead in ambiguity and constant change. It, things just won't you know, change and then stop, and then change and then stop. It's constant. So what do you see as the need for the modern-day leader now, wherever they may be, in order to try and create a world better led, just for people's lived experiences, whether that's at work, whether that's in the country that they live in? What do we need now, Rupert? That's probably an unfair question. No, I mean, I think I can answer that in, in, in two bits. The, you know, the first bit is, is a kind of before we even get to that leader, what do we need to do as a society? Yes. I think we have got to reclaim leadership you tell know. me what you mean by that so so to my point that you introduced with you know this idea that our our leadership in the corporate environment is becoming monochrome it's it's socially constrained leaders don't feel able to lead because they you know putting out they're putting out you know blogs and they're terrified about you know what their workforce are going to do and they get turned on them and then they get you know kicked out by the board or whatever whatever it might be 
I think collectively we've got to a society go we we need leaders who who can lead and that means they need to be resilient they need to be they need to be sometimes they need to be quite tough they need to make some hard decisions and supported and be supported in doing so and sometimes that means calling a spade a spade and I'm always struck by um, I remember the uh, I forget his name the CEO of the UK CEO of KPMG right who during the pandemic I think it was early in 21 uh, oh, I remember. Put out a a a communication to 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 the workforce, and it was sort of a little bit of pull your socks up, you know. Simplistically, you know, you you're not as badly off as many people in the country, sort of thing. You I know, saw the backlash on that, and there was a big backlash, yeah. and he he resigned. And if you read what he what he said, it's quite hard to disagree with anything he said. You know. If you work for KPMG, you, you've got a halfway decent job and you're in a much better, more fortunate position through the pandemic than the overwhelming majority of people in, the, in this country. And he was sort of trying to rally the troops to, to some degree. Now, might he have worded it differently? Possibly. But, but I worry when, when a CEO is hounded out mm. because of, you know, I think he was an Australian. You know, perhaps it would have landed slightly differently in Australia. I, I don't know. But he was being an to use the horrible word, an authentic leader. Uh, and it worries me when when leaders cannot lead lead in that way. So I think I think we've all got a vested interest to have these sorts of conversations and mm. ask ourselves where is our leadership going? Because where do we where do we find our leadership role models at the moment? We don't find it in politics largely. And it's quite hard to find it when you've got leaders who don't feel able to lead with real integrity. What do you think will need to change before we see that change because again there's these blurring boundaries between i suppose well if you just think about it i think we're in a culture at the moment aren't we where people can be cancelled very quickly people can be criticized globally very quickly so there's a nervousness i'm not sure that nervousness is ever going to go away no, I think to some degree you're right. You know, we live in this kind of social media age, so that so that ain't, that isn't going away. But I do think we've got to have the conversation, so that you know we can we can correct the course a little bit. You know, I'm not for a moment saying we want to go all the way back over over in the other direction because some of the some of these kind of um, boundaries constraints are are really positive. Um, but I think there is a little bit of debate going on. I thought it was quite interesting, without getting into the kind of details of it, not least because you know I'm not well enough informed about it. But when Dominic Raab stepped down um, as uh, as a minister, you know there was some quite interesting media discussion around that about well, okay, he was he was pretty heavy-handed in places, but there was a kind of conversation about but okay, but he's a minister, and probably there's sometimes a time to be quite quite robust and resilient. And it, I thought it was just it was an interesting discussion in parts of the media that I, that I hadn't seen before. So I think I think that sort of conversation is useful. Uh, I've been listening to um, the podcast, the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling, right. which is I'd recommend it to anybody because it takes the cancelling of J.K. Rowling as the kind of start point and and. It gives her a platform to talk a bit about why she put out the tweets that she put. And then it really, it's like a kind of 10-hour podcast, it really dissects the issue from every single angle. 
That's fantastic. Because rather than just cancelling J.K. Rowling, it's having a really mature, balanced debate about, in, in that case, you know, uh, there were kind of transgender issues at the heart of, heart of the tweet. And it yeah. really dissects it. I haven't finished it yet. But, it, but, it, but having those sorts of really mature conversations with all parties brought in, I, I think is where we need to be going with these sort of issues. So do you think, actually, we're probably in a society where very quickly people will make a decision that something is right or something is wrong, but there's also a ground to be taken where we say, hang on, let's look at what's gone on in some detail to really discuss what is the form of leadership we need to thrive going forward. I think I think absolutely that. We all make knee-jerk. We're all guilty of it, aren't we? You know, we, we well, of course, we all have our biases, don't we? And we exactly. all immediately think that something is right or wrong or... And, and you know, taking nature. a pause in your own life when you read something, okay, what's behind that? Read a bit more widely, get some other perspectives. But then in our professional environment, again, you know, just just taking a slightly broader perspective on, on things. And, you know, I think it's behold on leaders to communicate differently in, in the digital age. I absolutely, absolutely recognize that. Um, and be mindful of how their words might be construed. Yep. But but I don't think you know if we if we get to an environment where leaders don't feel able to be be resilient. You know, one thing the military teaches you is you know one of the principles of war we call selection and maintenance of the aim. In a battle, you gotta win. Um, so that there was a book written about the battle my father was killed in called "A Battle Is Fought to Be Won," and there's something quite important in that. You know businesses they need to achieve their objective you know any bits you know you can think of any number of things in our society where it's got to be done and, and there'll be any number of things trying to knock you off course it might be budgets it may be all sorts of kind of headwinds but unless you've got resilient leaders the battle whatever your battle is conceptual battle won't be won so I know you're doing work at the moment within the, the leadership space and you're doing talks within companies because of all your experiences and your background. Are you finding that people are receptive to this at the moment? Are you finding that actually people are considering this authenticity around leadership in a slightly different way just because of the landscape they're operating in? What, do, what are you seeing and hearing I, I, now? I, I do, you know, and I, I talked about this talk I gave to a, a big group of American business leaders yeah. and, and the, you know, the bit that you quoted me at the start, you know, that, that, that sort of that bit of my narrative, you know, that they were, at, they were all over, they completely agreed with. So, so I think there's a, you know, there is an itch amongst business leaders that, you know, that there's a problem here. We're in a very contested world. Um, I think the challenge is go back to our conversation earlier. You know, mm. these, a lot of these leaders, they haven't been brought up as leaders, you know, they found themselves leading, you know, they have very... Coming to it quite late. Yeah, and, you know, interestingly, an awful lot of companies, their their CEOs, the path to CEO is being via the, the chief finance officer. So they've, they've got to where they are because they're, you know, very good at the finances, central to business success. Best in class, we best, talked about this. Yeah, best in class. Mm. Doesn't necessarily... Best leader. Bingo. And suddenly they find themselves, you know, with these really challenging leadership uh, issues, but they haven't got the, you know, leadership is about having an arsenal of tools at your disposal and drawing out the right one for the right circumstance. Yep. And, you know, we're very lucky in the military. We we lead wonderful people. We make any number of mistakes. I talk about the, the military being a, sort of almost a leadership petri dish. Every day you get out of bed and as an officer you're leading. You're also being led. So you're learning from above. You're learning from below. You're also learning from leaders to your left and right. So this, you know, and we keep making mistakes, of course. 
but you know we're learning about leadership the entire time and and yet we still make any number of mistakes because leadership is really hard now i know in your role that you were focused on horizon scanning and i suppose looking at the military preparedness to deal with anything that may be happening around the world now that you're out of the military and you're looking at things from a leadership culture perspective what are you seeing or what are you trying to help leaders and organizations prepare for in the future so i think there's two bits to that i mean i think the first thing is in the military we have what we call a readiness culture right so so uh the old the organization i was responsible for in my last job we had teams uh who were at four hours notice to be on a plane to fly anywhere in the world. Wheels up. Wheels up with, yep. you know, four hours. I mean, that's, you know, that's, you know, by lunchtime in our case. Yes. Um, uh, and, and and so we have a readiness mindset. We, we you know, you, you, that's about your training. It's about your equipment. It's about your mental state. It's about, about your medical preparedness. It's about all sorts of things. That idea of a readiness mindset, I think, is is really important in the business space as well, because it means you come into work in the morning to do, you know, business as usual, and then bang, something happens, something in the market, something, you know, in one of one of your clients, and being being ready to to change direction, you know, in an instant. So I think there's something really important about people growing a readiness mindset, and what what does that involve? And there's resilience and this flexibility. Yeah. Um, uh, required required in that. Now we hear the term VUCA, which is a military term, uh, um, and you'll probably smile at this, right? <laughs> you know, we, where we talk to leaders about volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, and perhaps that really does sum up the military way of life. Uh, and I think I speak to a lot of leaders who say the pandemic was truly VUCA for them, but we really are living in a VUCA environment, aren't we? So again, why do you think people have always looked to the military for, for lessons in leadership? Well, if I just start with you know your your VUCA point, you know one of the things I think you, the the you know the people in the military have become more good at is that they kind of thrive on that VUCA, yeah. on that uncertainty, on the unexpected. We kind of get a bit bored when it's business as usual, um, and when the crisis comes, not that we want that. That readiness culture yeah. is there to kick You're, in. Yeah. you know the adrenaline goes, and you know the best people in the military are then cooking on gas. They you know they're yeah. absolutely at, at their best in in that in that environment. Yeah. And and so you train people to kind of embrace that, you know. It's like rugby players when the game is kind of really really loose. The you know the best best players come through. Yes. Um, and what a phrase I was taught very early in my career, um, which which kind of hope stood me well, is in the face of the enemy, do something. Now that might be a real enemy, but it might be a mm. crisis. In a crisis, when presented with a problem, do something. Being frozen isn't the answer. Yeah, decision paralysis will not get you very You far. have to start making decisions with the limited information you've got because you're not going to get all of the information. Yes. And if you wait, your competitors, your enemy, whatever the environment is you're in, they're going to beat you to the punch. I want to ask you how people can get in contact with you so that they can carry on the conversation with you or get you involved in their leadership conversations as well with all of your experience. I should have asked you as well, just for anyone who doesn't know, uh, CBE. 
What is that? <laughs> it, it's so it's a uh, command of the British Empire. It's a uh, it's a it, the, the, as some people know the British kind of award system is in some ways quite anachronistic, but but it's one of the orders uh, one of the the um, orders of um, uh, uh, that we have in the, in the in the British military. And am I right in thinking it's MBE, OBE, CBE? And you drop. So I had an MBE once upon a time. And, and then as you get promoted in the order, you drop the first oh, did you? Oh, So um, that goes. Yeah. And that was awarded for? Uh, the CBI was awarded uh, in Afghanistan. And then in many ways, I'm proud. I, I, um, I was awarded an American uh, Legion, Legion of Merit, which is the highest award they can give to a non-American citizen. Right. What was that for? That was for um, the Cantadesh campaign, was the deputy commander of the US-led coalition. See, there is so much more that I can discover the, the, the more we talk. How can people get in touch with you, Rupert? What's the best way? Uh, LinkedIn is is really really the best route. Um, all my details are on there. Rupert Jones isn't. Jones is quite common. Rupert is less so. Uh, you'll find me easily enough on LinkedIn. I'll put it into the show notes as well so that people can uh, easily find that, that link too. Listen, Rupert, thanks so much for taking the time to come in and chat a little bit about leadership. It's much appreciated. It's been an absolute pleasure, Adam. Take care. Thank you. Join us again next week for more curiosity and insight with the Leadership Enigma. We'd love to hear your comments on today's show as well as suggestions for future topics and guests. Get in touch with me on LinkedIn or visit us at www.leadersenigma.com. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on all your major podcast platforms and on our dedicated YouTube channel. Thanks again for joining the community.